0: Morning, Bethel family. All right, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, we are doing a series through the book of Genesis, and we're going to finish chapter 3 here this morning. Started last week, and we're going to look at verses 15 to 24, 14 to 24 this morning. So, pretty easy to find, first book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find Genesis 3 on page three, two and three, but the verses we're looking at are on page three. So we'll read it as we go along through the study. I'm going to just have a brief introduction here. As we head in here, we're going to realize that Genesis 3 is the genesis, the beginning, the origin of pain. So I want you to think for a second. What is pain? We we all have experienced it. We all will experience it. Sometimes things that are ubiquitous, sometimes things that are all around us and very normal to us, sometimes they're hard to define. We don't ever take the time to think about what it actually is. Why do we have pain? What is pain? There's actually lots of literature out there with scientists trying to wrestle that thing to the ground because it can be so subjective. Neuroscientists studying, you know, what the brain does whenever pain is actually, you know, stimulated. Well, maybe here's a simple definition. It's your body's way of letting you know that something's wrong. Okay? So... We're going to see the genesis of pain in Genesis 3, and make no mistake, pain is bad. Pain is a result of the fall, okay? It's not inherently a good thing, but it's not all bad, okay? In a fallen world, pain is not all bad. We usually think that pain is all bad. We want to avoid it at all costs, but pain is your body's way of telling you that something is wrong. So that can be incredibly helpful in a fallen world. In fact, there is a disease that is incurable called congenital insensitivity to pain. And if you look up the, you know, handful of cases, people that have this, it's really dangerous. One mother of a little girl who had this said, I would give anything for her to feel pain. So keep that in mind as we head into Genesis 3. We took the first half of Genesis 3 last week. And we're going to walk through the second half this morning. There is an outline in your bulletin, or you'll see the, the points on the slides um, up behind me here. You can follow along that way. All right, first point, war, spiritual war. So the temptation of the serpent, the choices of Adam and Eve that we looked at last week, the front half of Genesis 3, they were nothing short of cosmic treason. Okay, I'll give another definition for what it's worth. It's helpful. Treason is the betrayal of one's country especially by attempting to kill the sovereign or overthrow the government. It's a pretty apt description for what happened in Genesis 3, isn't it? That fits. That was certainly Satan's desire. And Adam and Eve's eating of the fruit amounted to siding with the serpent. So let's look at how God then responds to this cosmic rebellion, this cosmic treason. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you. Above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Which is an image of utter defeat in other parts of Scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God curses the serpent directly. And in verse 15, God promises that he, God will put enmity between Satan and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. So you're thinking, okay, the serpent's offspring, what does this mean? Satan spawned little demon babies after this, you know? Like, what's going on? No. As we continue along through Scripture, we realize that there are two kinds of people in the world those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. Okay? And obviously we all enter the world kind of slaves of the evil one even though we don't know it. Okay? Slaves of darkness, of our sin. So we can transfer. We can be transferred, right? Okay? But this is actually a really hopeful sign for the woman right off the bat. Do you see it? God set her apart. Despite her sin, as on his side, not on the serpent's side. So sadly, we see this hostility, the enmity kind of played out violently in the next chapter. You can see it. Cain is offspring of the serpent, and he's a murderer, just like Satan is a murderer. And Abel is in that other category, offspring of the woman. He brings a, a sacrifice to God that's acceptable. He's trusting God, and and Cain is rebelling against God. Okay, So the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman are at war in the very next chapter. Do you see it? So Genesis is a book of beginnings, and so many of the Bible's themes that thread their way all the way through from Genesis to Revelation are anchored right here in these first few chapters. And I want you to just see this one, this whole two kinds of people in the world. I want you to see how it's played out just a little bit. So flip ahead to, keep your finger in Genesis 3, and flip ahead to John 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8. Chapter 8, that's the big number. Verses are the little numbers. So it's on page 894, if you're using the Pew Bible. And listen to how Jesus speaks to the Jews. Jews who, at that point, at least this, this group was very hard and closed to him. Okay? So they're rejecting his word. They're rejecting him. And so here's how he responds to them. Verse 37. I know. Listen, listen for the offspring language. And who do you belong to? Which category? There's two categories. Verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. In other words physical lineage, they're Israelites, they're Jews, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Two fathers. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And then they strike a low blow. Think virgin birth and how that would have looked in the first century. They say to him, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Let's talk about who your father is. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, they said, we have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word, hear and accept my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is is that you are not of God. Okay, so there is the Offspring of the serpent, and there is the offspring of the woman. These two categories. And at the head is the serpent and the woman. So it's like the head of two races, representative heads. And there is enmity, there is war, and it continues to this day. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have an enemy of your soul. So Genesis 3 is the genesis of spiritual warfare. The New Testament makes it clear. Listen to, listen, listen to Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is the origin, the genesis of war, and the war continues. So we need to be heads up and aware of that because one of his schemes is just to lull us to sleep. Oh, there's no battle being waged, and we're falling prey. So This is an important reminder that there is spiritual warfare to be fought. Second point, it's also the genesis of pain, which we mentioned already in the introduction. Okay, so look at verses 16 to 19. We'll look at those in just a second here. So sadly, we see the fallout of the fall here, and it's pain, lots of pain. Pain, pain, and more pain. The genesis of pain, but make sure you connect some dots here, okay? The pain in Genesis 3, came as a result of what? Of us, our parents, doubting God's goodness, not trusting him, not obeying him. The, the, the pain came in as a result of buying the tempting lies of the evil one. So Hamilton, one of the commentators, summarizes this so well. He says, The serpent held out to the couple the prospect that being like God would bring with it unlimited privileges, unheard of acquisitions and gifts. Alas, rather than experiencing bliss, they encounter misery. Rather than sitting on a throne, they are expelled from the garden. Rather than new prerogatives, they experience only a reversal. The couple not only fail to gain something they do not presently have, the irony is that they lose what they currently possess, unsullied fellowship with God. They found nothing and lost everything and there's nothing new under the sun. In every temptation, every time you are tempted to doubt the goodness of God and his ways and his wisdom and his plan and his commands and go your own way, every temptation holds out the promise of something better. But what ends up happening is when we buy those lies, we find nothing and we lose everything. So, pain gets its start right here, we'll see the painful consequences in three categories in verses 16 and 19. For the woman, for the man, and then for marriage. So pain in childbearing, pain in providing, and pain, or you could say war, in marital relationships. So first, the pain in childbearing. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain... You shall bring forth children. Now, I mentioned this last week, but it's worth seeing again. God doesn't curse the woman. Did you ever notice that? He curses the serpent directly, but he doesn't curse the woman. These are painful consequences, very real consequences. And even though all humanity and even the creation is under a curse, God does not curse the woman or the man directly. So, like we saw in 315, God identifies the woman over against the serpent. Heads of two different peoples or races, one belonging to the serpent, one belonging to God. So, very real consequences, but the consequences don't mean that the woman doesn't belong to God. Same thing happened to Moses. He wasn't allowed into the promised land, right? But that doesn't mean he didn't belong to God. David, consequences to his egregious sin doesn't mean he wasn't a man after God's own heart. And the same thing can happen to us. But sometimes what do we do? We read the consequences as though God has forsaken us. No, no. That's not necessarily the case. So other thing we should notice is the connection between verse 16 and verse 15. So yes, childbearing will be filled with great pain. But do you see it? The the promise of verse 15 that her offspring is going to crush the serpent's head, the very painful consequences of sin and childbearing will also be the means through which the victory over the serpent is won. Do you see that? So the birth pains, they're both a reminder of sin, but they're also a reminder of coming victory, of hope. So I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So Satan nipped at Jesus' heel, and he crushed the serpent's head. So the birth of the Messiah was through the woman. So after last week, Tyler showed me a picture. He said, I love this painting, um, and it's really good. So I found it, and I want you to see it. It was actually <laughs> painted by some nun from Our Lady of the Mississippi Abbey, which is in Iowa, of course. In 2003. So, whichever one you're looking at, Eve is in the garment made for her by God, right? Sacrificed animal to cover their nakedness and shame. The serpent is wrapped around her leg. She's got the fruit in her hand. And Mary is putting Eve's downcast face, she's putting her hand on her belly. And look at her foot. It's on the serpent's head. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Powerful summary of what's going on here in 315. Okay? So, the victory ultimately and decisively comes through the Messiah. But, this is cool, not solely through the Messiah... He actually empowers us, his people, to fight the good fight of the faith and to push back the darkness. Remember, I am the light of the world, Jesus said, and then he says you're the light of the world. <laughs> so he won the decisive victory, and then we can now fight in the strength that he supplies to push back the darkness. So we can and be, we we can and we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8. Listen to this promise in Romans 16, 20. And this was given to the whole church in Rome, it's given to God's people. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the reason that we can crush Satan under our feet is because Jesus stomped on his head at the cross. Right? So we can't do it apart from him. But in his strength, we can do it, and we're called to do it, which goes back to the previous point of war, spiritual warfare. So, I love how um, Ken Matthews summarizes this. He says, The serpent was instrumental in undoing the woman, and in turn, the woman will ultimately bring down the serpent through her offspring. Beautiful gospel reversal. So there is light, there is hope, breaking in all over the place on the darkest of days. Second, there's pain in the work of breadwinning and providing. Verse 17. So to Adam... He said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and not my voice, implied. Because you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is, not you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. There's that pain word again. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam was given charge of the garden to work and to keep it back in chapter 2. And at that point, this would have been like painless, futility-free, happy farming. Okay? As a result of the fall, his work... To provide will be painful, full of frustration, and in the end the ground wins. One little qualifier here, work itself is not a result of the curse. Okay? It's the frustration and futility that accompanies our work that's a result of the fall. Okay? It means that the harmonious relationship that was originally intended between mankind and nature is fractured, is broken. But that doesn't mean that work itself is bad. It's not. And it can be redeemed. So also, to dust you shall return. In the end, death wins. There's no escaping it. Adam was made from the dust, and to the dust he will return. So here, sadly, we have the genesis of death. And we'll see more of that in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and beyond. Just as God warned, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So anyone who's worked more than a few days in their life knows The futility, the frustration, the pain. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of eloquent testimony to the futility that so often fills our lives. But this is just the beginning of this story, right? As the story continues, and as Jesus crushes the serpent's head, the gospel renews and redeems work and gives it new meaning. Right? So Jesus came to take the curse that we deserve to bring the all-things-new future into the present, to bring redemption and renewal into every nook and cranny of life, not least our work. It's the breaking in of the kingdom, kingdom of God, under his good, loving rule. So the New Testament says things like this about work. Even though all this futility and frustration com- comes in, in Christ... Our work is meaningful and can be renewed and we can have strength and energy and joy in it. So Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. No matter how crummy your job is or how crummy your boss is, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Or, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that work is never in vain. So, pain in childbearing, pain in work, provision. Finally, pain in marriage. Okay? Back to verse 16. Did you see the second half of it there? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So, The relationship with God is broken. The peace, the good, good, very good is broken. And it's broken on a horizontal level. So we saw last week how after they ate the fruit, immediately guilt and shame and fear enter in. And they're hiding and they're blame shifting. So vertical harmony with God is broken. Horizontal harmony with husband and wife is also broken. So let's press in a little bit here to see what's being said. Your desire shall be for your husband. What does that mean? Sexual desire? Is that good? Is it bad? What? And he shall ru- rule over you. Is that headship or is that domination? Is that good? Is it bad? You don't even have to turn the page if you're using the Pew Bible, but look at Genesis 4.7. There's a verbal parallel here that is striking, and I think it's intended to help us understand what's being stated in 3.16. So Cain is angry that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God, and his wasn't, so God speaks to him and warns him. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, like, trust me, present the appropriate sacrifice, you'll be accepted. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. Almost the exact language of 316. So what's being said? Does sin want to have sex with Cain? No, it's not sexual desire. Sin wants to rule and dominate and control Cain, but he must master it. He must exercise control over it. So bring that back into chapter 3. The woman's desire will be for her husband. She will desire control. She may do it brazenly. She may do it more subtly through manipulation, but she will want to do it. Any amens from the women in the room that this is in your heart? It's really quiet. Okay. It's okay. I'm really going really to like poke at the guys more, so if I need to say that. But then, and he will rule over you. Just like in four seven, it means you must master it, dominate it. That's not positive. This is fallout from the fall. Harmonious marital relationships where they both ruled together, original, good, 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 very good intention or good design. They were to be the king and queen of creation. Now it's going to be replaced with this ugly kind of pull, push, grasping for power and control. So Hamilton describes this dynamic really well. It's sad. The sinful husband will try to be a tyrant over his wife. Far from being a reign of co-equals over the remainder of God's creation, the relationship now becomes a fierce dispute with each party trying to rule the other. The two who once reigned as one attempt to rule each other. Or, as another guy writes, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. So this is the genesis. I don't think I need to convince you. This is the genesis. isn't of so much marital strife and pain and suffering and brokenness. It's right here. So on the part of the husband, here in Genesis 3, we find the genesis of all passivity and all domination. Right here, headwaters. And sadly, those oftentimes go together, don't they? Passive-aggressive. So passive, husbands aggressive domineering husbands and then passive aggressive husbands or men in general so it's all here in genesis 3 remember back at the end of verse 6 didn't hit it last week because it fits more with this section here she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate that is the headwaters of male passivity So the serpent, the low creature over whom Adam and Eve were supposed to rule, and Adam had been given the moral governance of the garden, and he was supposed to work and keep it, guard the sacred space. The serpent tries to upend that creation order, and he, this low creature, attacks the woman in order to upend the creation order and ruin it. And and Adam who had been given the governance of the garden to keep it, to protect that sacred space, he should have gone, excuse me, if you're going to get to her, you've got to come through me first. Like, these are lies. Get out of here. He should have banished the serpent from the garden. But instead, he sat passively by. So the point of... Of all this is not that women are more gullible than men. It was a satanic strategy to upend the creation order. So instead of active, responsible guardianship on the part of Adam, he passively stood by. And then he passively passed the buck when God asked him if he ate the fruit. Well, the woman. So the world. Women, wives, children, and sadly even the church have suffered under the bane of male passivity ever since. Women, you want an amen there? There's nothing new under the sun. But that doesn't mean we have to keep falling for the same old temptations and schemes. So the ditch on the other side, so your desire will be for him and he will rule over you, So passivity is a ditch for men, but also domination, throwing their weight around, throwing your weight around. So to threaten, to bark, to do what's necessary to get your wife under your thumb, any kind of abuse, that is the opposite of God's original good design. It's the opposite of the beauty and wisdom of complementarity as he originally designed it. So domination and abuse, control, controlling husband, those are not true spiritual leadership. They're actually lazy and selfish. It's a result of weakness, not strength. Insecurity to be so easily threatened. And again, this passive-aggressive that so oftentimes goes together, vacillating between the two, it's like, I'll let you do all the hard work, that I don't want to, selfishness, until you step on my toes, threaten my control, and then I'm going to get aggressive and throw my weight around. I mean, I think some husbands, I don't know, if you're in here, if this is you, we can just repent of this and fix our eyes on Jesus. Some men maybe even hold back and serve in calculated, minimalistic ways so that their wife's expectations never get too high because, you know, if if I do that, then she's going to expect more and then more and more and more. So I'm just going to hang back here, keep the expectations low. Like, we need to realize, men, that passivity is not passive, it's very active. And we have to pummel it to death by the grace of Jesus. So our wills need to be governed by the grace of God. So Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect image of God comes and how did he treat his bride? He laid his life down for her. He was a servant. Doesn't mean he didn't lead, but he led with humility and proactive concern and his headship was burden-bearing headship, not rights-exercising headship for the sake of personal gain. So our wills, men, must be governed by the redeeming, recreating power of the gospel to conform us to the image of Christ, the perfect husband. So that we can pummel our passivity, that we can just put any kind of domineering tendencies to death. Headship is not, like spiritual leadership is not a right to be used for your selfish advantage. It's a responsibility and a burden to be born for the good of your wife and your children. So, the burden of spiritual leadership ought to rest heavily on us as men. And we ought to make war with passivity and domination. And we ought to seek Christ likeness, active, humble, strong, servant hearted headship. All right. Women, there's ditches on either side for you as well. So, there can be a, you know, her desire will be for her husband. So there can be a blatant usurping of leadership in marriage where women henpeck their wives or belittle them or shame their husbands into silence and submission. That's something to be put off, put to death. There's also this opposite ditch where it's much more subtle, where you use your smarts and your female powers to control your man. So what is going on there? It's this dynamic, not of respect and support of his spiritual leadership, but it's actually a prideful superiority that is smart enough not to be obvious about it. So we need to know our tendencies to play these games. They're satanic strategies. Let's cast them off. We need to pursue the redemption of marriage that comes by the power of the gospel. So what kind of husband was Jesus, is Jesus, And for wives, what kind of, what was the nature of Jesus' submission to the Father? What's the nature of the church's relationship to Jesus? What ought that look like? The posture of us, his church, his bride toward him, our divine husband. And oh, how desperately the church, our church, our children, our world needs to, to not just hear us talk about the wisdom of God's good design for marriage, though they do. They need to taste and see that God's marriage design is good because they look around and go, if I ever get married, I actually might want to be married because I want it to be like that. And that is possible by the power of the gospel. So can we, again, this is not just a, Well, Genesis 3, what, like, your marriage, wherever it's at, God wants to redeem and strengthen and make it more beautiful, more like Ephesians 5 marriage. So, what does that look like? What does that mean for you? Taking it very seriously, praying, praying for your marriage, praying for the marriages in this church, praying for future marriages, praying for your kids, like Steve was mentioning the way that they pray for their kids? Are we praying for our kids that they will see it and they will embody it? That God's good, 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 very good design and the redemption and renewal of all that's broken, all this pain that's come in as a result of the fall can be accomplished, can be produced by the power of Jesus. So there's origin of so much pain in Genesis 3 and I've taken way too long with it already. So let's look at some notes of hope quickly here. Verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So even though death had been introduced, Adam was just told that he would return to the dust. His naming of the woman is a note of hope. Eve means the life giver. So Adam is keying off what God has said in 315, that her offspring, so she's she's going to bear children. And those children are going to crush the serpent's head. So even though death has entered in, it's not going to get the last word. God's going to get the last word. And with that last word of victory over Satan, hope is birthed. The second note of hope is with these clothes. So robes are in place of fig leaves. So the pain of childbirth, that's going to be a regular reminder of sin, its consequences, but it's also going to be a regular reminder of victory future offspring. In the same way, the clothes do the same thing. They're a constant reminder to Adam and Eve that they're no longer innocent and pure before God, but they're a reminder that God himself clothed them. Like, how kind of God right here. They tried to cover their shame with fig leaves, their own man-made solution, and it didn't work. It was pathetic. They are in need of a rescuer, a clother from the outside. They need rescue. They need gospel. They need to be covered in a way that only God can do. So this animal sacrifice to clothe them is a pointer to the gospel where Jesus ultimately was sacrificed so that we could be covered, our shame, our guilt covered by the blood of the cross and his righteousness as a robe clothing us. So, after the fall, war enters in, pain enters in, and even though hope enters in, the consequences can't be avoided because the sin of the fall led to exile. Last point, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So rebellion meant expulsion and exile. And it's a sad irony that the cherubim are guarding the way to the tree of life. Adam was supposed to guard the Garden of Eden, and now he's being guarded from it. But there's mercy here too. You see it? This isn't just punishment. So if Adam and Eve were to eat from the tree of life and live forever, they would live forever in their fallen condition with all this pain. Wouldn't that be horrible? That wouldn't be the most loving thing. So God had a better plan. He did not want them to eat of the tree of life again under the curse, but he did want them to eat of the tree of life again after he had taken the curse and made all things new. So bring it all together. This passage is about the genesis of pain, but this passage is not the end of the story. It's only the beginning. And so there's hope embedded here at the beginning of all things broken. The genesis of pain led to ultimately the cross, the apex of pain, where a cursed tree became a tree of life. And then, you know what? Now we are heading unstoppably to the everlasting end of pain, the terminus of pain. So if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life, pain would have been eternal. But pain tells us that there's something wrong. And it should lead us to the one who can take care of what's wrong. He can deal with our suffering and our pain and our sin and our shame and all that's ruined everything. And that same one is the one who promises the day when his healing will be complete when we eat from the tree of life. So just maybe prayerfully, let me read the conclusion of the story here, and then we're going to sing a song fittingly to close, Christ is Mine Forever. But just listen as the musicians come on up. Revelation 21 and 22. This is the end of the story. This is God's ultimate plan. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. No more pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. That is the story. It's our story. So the fall was the genesis of pain because of our sin. But it led in the mercy and love of God to the apex of pain, Jesus on the cursed tree, again, because of our sin, but all of human history, every single human, everything is heading to either eternal pain, if you reject Jesus, or the terminus of pain. And everything healed and made new and good and perfect forevermore. So we're going to close by singing Christ is mine forevermore. Fittingly, as we close. So, just given the time, it would be great if the kids sung this song with us because this is a good song. So if you want to go get your kids and bring them in so they can join you in singing this good song, feel free to do that and I'm sure the nursery workers will be happy about that.